This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast is delighted to welcome author Farah Mendelssohn to the show. Farah, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. It's fantastic, particularly as we're doing this across the Atlantic. Yes. So I'm going to start off with a slightly different opening question than I usually ask authors. Farah, you've written a number of critical studies of science fiction and fantasy literature. You've even won a Hugo Award for co-editing the Cambridge Companion to Science Fiction. You're currently working on a massive definitive study of the works of Robert Heinlein. So why is your first novel a historical novel rather than fantasy or science fiction? Oh, well, first of all, because I've never been any good at writing science fiction, which is what I would write if I could. I must say here, I never intended to be a fiction writer. I may be the only person you ever interview who never wrote fiction as a child and is absolutely forced to. Did it once as an undergraduate because the alternative was a major theoretical essay and of course I had not understood one word of. I was teaching creative writing a few years ago and a colleague who shall be nameless turned around and said I shouldn't be teaching creative writing unless I'd written fiction. And I was a bit irritated, (laughs) so I spent the next year learning to write fiction. And one of the people I modelled myself on is a British children's writer called Geoffrey Trees, because he always wrote 60,000-word books. And because I'm very much a structuralist, I could break them down and I could Uh see what he was doing. And I used his work as a model and wrote several historical pieces because all my um, degrees are in history. I'm not a literature person at all. I have three degrees in history. That was actually something something that was going to come up later in the interview because it looked like all of your teaching work has been in literature. But I... No, not at all. I started in American studies, moved into history when American studies started to fold in the UK, which it did across the country. And then I got pulled into cultural studies and then somebody said, we need somebody to teach horror. You know lots about science fiction. I have no <laughs> idea what the connection is. And I found myself being pulled into the publishing department because of my work on science fiction conventions and work with publishers. Uh-huh. And that's how I ended up drifting. But I've hardly ever taught straight literature. So what, what's your specialty in history other than American studies? Well, I trained in 1930s American history. I have a passion for the English Civil War, and my current critical book is a book about children's literature written about the English Civil War, which is fascinating. That's pretty specialised. Yeah, it it really is riveting. There is almost nothing more exciting than the English Civil War for all sorts of reasons, not least because the rate of literacy was at an all-time high, and lots of people from sections of society you would not expect either to have left documents or to be engaged in politics, left documents and were engaged in politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you resist Brilliana Harley, who in one breath is telling her son Ned to send home some socks so she can re-knit them, and in the next is writing to him about the arguments between Parliament and the King? Oh, you know, yes. This is amazing stuff. 
But the Regency, of course, we all read Georgette Hare. Yes. It's just part of growing up. And the early 19th century got more and more interesting to me through reading a book by somebody called Jenny Uglow hmm. called In These Times. And it's about Britain during the years of the Napoleonic War. Uh-huh. And the stuff I'd never quite understood about that period started to make a lot more sense, which is that Britain is under siege, it's poor, it's isolated, and it's insular. And also, by the end of the war, it's got a man shortage. One of the things I realised I was fascinated by is that Georgette Hare starts writing about the Regency during the man shortage in the 20s and 30s. Oh, I hadn't made that connection, yeah. But what she's replicating is the post-Waterloo situation. So the two periods actually match quite neatly in terms of the romantic stresses of the period. And that, I think, may be why that, the stories she tells work so well for her initial audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why you have quite a lot of characters in it who are older women who've missed out because their generation died on the field of Waterloo. It is a fascinating period, and it's one that a lot of people don't really make enough of when they write in that period. And they always tend to focus on London or the countryside when it's the period that the great cities like Birmingham, Manchester and Leeds are rising up. And I come from Birmingham, and if you come from Birmingham, you tend to be a bit of a patriot. (laughs) It's a lot like Chicago. Mm-hmm. If you think of the atmosphere as Birmingham as being very similar to Chicago, that sense of being a second capital. Uh-huh. And I was thinking that what you were saying about the types of stories that get written during a man shortage, that with the American Civil War, the same dynamic was part of what contributed to women's relationships, the, the whole you know romantic friendship, Boston marriage era, yeah, where, where women were making their own households because they were extra. <laughs> Oh, and this is a total piece of trivia. So one of the writers I've been looking at this week is an American writer called Mary Bueller Dix. I think I've got her name right. She's an American Boston woman who wrote historical fiction, which is very good, two of which are set in the English Civil War, (laughs) who had close relationships with her female publisher and another writer and never got married. And Mm -hmm. one of her stories is about a girl dressing up as a boy to go off to the war Uh because this child desperately wants to be a boy. And there's a lovely line in it about any sensible girl has always wanted to be a boy. (laughs) It's just... (laughs) <laughs> little red flags going off everywhere. Uh, I think she went to Radcliffe, and I'd love to find out more about, about her. Obviously, a late 19th century lesbian writer. Yeah, so let's let's move on specifically to your book. Uh, I think it's, it has become apparent in our discussion that this is a, a Regency romance type. So let me read the cover blurb for Spring Flowering. The, the, got the cover blurb to work from because at the time we're recording, the book hasn't actually come out yet, though it will be out, as I understand, by the time we air. So here's the blurb. Everything changes for Anne Gray when her father dies and her closest friend Jane marries and moves away. Anne must give up the independence and purpose she found as mistress of her father's parsonage in the country and move to her uncle and aunt's new style house in the growing city of Birmingham. The friendship of Anne's cousins, especially the mathematically inclined Louisa, is some compensation for freedoms curtailed. But soon Anne must consider two very different proposals, either of which will bring yet more change. Should she return to her village home as the wife of the new parson, Mr. Morden, or become companion to the rather deliciously unsettling widow, Mrs. King? Do you follow more Georgette Heyer, or are you following Jane Austen? Is it, is it more the, the modern Regency romance style, or...? 
I don't know. In some ways, it's not quite either, in that there are no grand happenings in this book. It's a very straightforward story in which Anne's father dies and she goes to live with her family in Birmingham. And she meets people and she starts to settle in and she starts to develop. And it's quite a domestic story. Uh So in that sense, possibly closer to Jane Austen. But you can't be Jane Austen because Jane Austen is writing for people who take for granted the world she's writing about. Yes, yes. And very often it's actually easy to misread. Just a little example. I had a PhD student who wrote about how Jane Austen's work reflects the esteem in which the Navy was held. And having read Jenny Uglow, I was able to say to her, no, Jane Austen is writing about the esteem she wants the Navy (laughs) to be held in. The Navy is actually looked down on in this period, partially because it's a vehicle for social mobility, as Uh in it lets oiks become admirals, tut, tut, tut. Yeah, that that comes Uh, up in a number of places, I've noticed. It does. And she's assuming lots of stuff that we can't, because I can't assume that, for example, you know the city of Birmingham. I can't assume that you know the button trade of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Or Okay, so I had to set the book within a particular three years, because if I didn't, there's no theatre. Why is there no theatre? Why because is there Birmingham no is a non-conform- non-conformist city. Um, I think the Unitarians are growing so fast, you know, it's the Methodists, they're growing so fast, that they build three separate chapels on the same site over 20 years. The chapel can't, doesn't stay big enough. And I had to explain things like that. The fact that the non-conformists are actually okay with things like music hall, because that's just performance. But they aren't okay with theatre, because that's pretending to be somebody else, and that's untruthful. Yes, but in the in the excerpt from your book that I saw on the website, it was clear that the nuances of the various religious movements were going to be key to some of the characters. Yes. And that's the kind of thing that a 19th century person would take for granted. But I can't assume that a 21st century reader will know anything about. I mean, I didn't actually include the Quakers, even though it's a group I know most about, Mm -hmm. because 19th century Quakers don't look like anything like 17th or 20th century Quakers. (laughs) And getting into that, people wouldn't believe me when I explained. They're barely (laughs) even pacifists in that period. So when you were writing this book, were you treating it sort of as an homage to the genre of literature or more as a historical project? Actually, it was a challenge. A friend of mine, Jane Carnell, um, who I've known for many, many years, we were having a discussion about whether we thought you could write a lesbian regency. And she felt it couldn't be done because you couldn't get the hierarchies or the relationships right. And I thought it could be as long as I stayed within certain conventions that were an issue in the period. So there's a very good book called In the Georgian Household. I think I've got that book. (laughs) Amanda Vickery. It talks about the degree to which industrialization left families very anxious about their daughters. Uh And a lot of reason why some women stayed unmarried was because they didn't get to meet men. So in the If you look at the Victorians, they tend to marry cousins and friends of brothers. They stay very much within the family. Because that way you can make sure your daughter is safe in a world that is increasingly full of strangers. Uh And I realised that I could meet some of Jane's concerns if I moved Anne 
into a quite tight-knit context. Mm-hmm. So all of Anne's possible suitors are either relations or business partners, either of her father, Ada Parson, or of her uncle, Uncle Joshua. And I wanted to make that work. And that was part of the challenge that I set out to do. And the other challenge was that I really wanted some sex. <laughs> I didn't want to write a coming out narrative. So this isn't a coming out narrative, not least because I don't think the Georgians would have understood it that way. To start with, they were much more sexual beings than the Victorians. They were much more comfortable about talking about sex. They knew what was underneath women's skirts and in men's trouser flaps because, well, 80% of the population is still rural in this period. Mm -hmm. They know what animals do. (laughs) Yeah, one of the things that that I find interesting in talking to authors of lesbian historic fiction is how many of them don't understand the cyclicity of sexuality and think that you go back to the Victorian era and everybody was uptight and nobody had sex and it must have been like that all the way back in history. Uh, and well, not me, but the Victorians had big families. Yes, I'm talking <laughs> myths here. Get big families by not having sex. But I remember my father talking to me years ago when I very first told him about my sexuality, and he told me about the nice two ladies who lived next door and only had one bed, and everybody knew, but nobody talked about straight sex either. So. In some ways, the most tricky point for homosexuals has been when heterosexuals start talking about sex publicly. Uh When everybody's not talking about it, it's actually kind of easier. So one of my aunts was known as a career girl, for example, and she went out with her lady friends. (laughs) I have no idea what it meant, but it was a perfectly acceptable term. I still remember the point when when my mother casually mentioned while working on genealogy materials, it's like, oh, your your great aunt so-and-so, she was a lesbian, you know. And it's like, what? 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 And this was in the the early part of the 20th century. And the question that most infuriates me is, how do you know they were having sex? Well, thanks to Mary Stokes, we know that quite a lot of straight couples weren't either. (laughs) As a definition of an emotional relationship, that's just silly. But yes, there's also this thing that sex may be fairly similar and not change much, although even then, different practices are acceptable at different points and desirable at different points. But the way people come together and bond has often got much more to do with economics. Mm-hmm. And one of the fascinating thing uh, accounts is of William and Orange and his wife Mary, because there's some suspicion that both of them were gay and that both of them had partners. And there's a fascinating book. Now, let me get this right. They're not authors I particularly go for. The author of Map and Lucia, his father was a bishop and was quite well known for the young men he hung out with. But his wife, and she had six kids, was very clearly a lesbian. Yeah, I think I have that. I think I have that book on my on my list to uh, to cover for my history blog. It's a wonderful book. It's hilarious, but it is quite clear that in a, a world in which, for the Victorians, women aren't supposed to be very sexual. Therefore, what women are doing together can't matter. Right now, the Georgians think otherwise. The Georgians think of women as predatory. You know, their approach is different, but it's perfectly plausible in a relatively homosocial world for men and women to just be getting on with what they want to do while coming together to produce children. 
yeah. within the economic unit. And unless you find that utterly revolting, which some people do, mm-hmm. I suspect most people kind of got on with it and then... Had their fun on the side. <laughs> yeah, weren't necessarily even thinking of it that way, just thinking of it as their intimate friend with whom they kissed, petted and patted. Yeah, this is this is one one thing that I find fascinating in the looking at the researching of lesbian history and the writing of lesbian historical fiction have the same problem that so many modern people are looking for an exact mirror in the past and instead of like embracing the past for what it was. Yes. And and I think I mean people have always made their lives and at various points that has been interfered with with whatever the current scare was, which has been expressed in many different ways. I mean, some accusations of witchcraft were probably about sexual practices. But it's hard to tell. What we cannot assume, though, is that people did not have close emotional and physical relationships, because they probably did. Mm-hmm. But how they thought of them, that's trickier. I gave to my two a more open and clear sexuality in part because they're Georgians, not Victorians. They've not grown up protected. They've grown up seeing animals do things. Mm -hmm. But also because I get really bored with coming out stories. Oh, and I get really bored with the one true love trip. Thinking writing a sequel and it might get a little more complicated. (laughs) I agree with you on on, uh, coming out stories. One of the reasons that I, I dug deep into starting my historic research project was because I wanted to write historic lesbian fiction and I didn't want to just write a whole series of coming out stories. I wanted to know what did they know? What what community did yeah. they have? And people do construct community. People know each other. People recognize each other. As I said, I'm thinking of a sequel and that will involve some of that construction of community. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm looking forward to that. So in addition to this sequel, uh, are there any other projects of yours that you'd like to mention for the listeners? I don't think my other work would be remotely <laughs> interesting to people. Although the book I haven't finished is a book on the children's historical writer, Jeffrey Trees, and I'll be working on that later next year. Uh-huh. Um, so if you're interested in historical fiction, he's fascinating because he starts writing in the 1930s. He is a genuine communist fellow traveler, by which I mean he goes to all the meetings but doesn't join. Uh-huh. He writes some of the first... Uh, to use the American phrase, co-ed historical fiction. Mm. So from 1940, he always has a boy and a girl. He has an awful lot of cross-dressing girls. He tries to write feminist heroines from very, very early on before it's the norm for male writers. That might interest people. Yeah. But the romance yeah. work is definitely something I think I'm going to pursue. It was a, a ter- rather a shock when this got picked up. Uh-huh. I should explain. I tend to blog when I'm writing, and I do it because people asking me questions about my writing keeps me going. Uh-huh. And this was actually a NaNoWriMo project. And as I was blogging and got to the end of it, Fiona Pickles asked if she could read it. And I said yes, thinking nothing of it. And the next thing I knew, found myself with a contract offer. Thinking, what? But, but, but. And as anybody will tell you, I have been saying for 20 years, oh, I'm not a writer. It's just I have things to say. And the only way I can do those is to write them now. <laughs> and I've now been told very firmly, I am not allowed to say I am not a writer anymore. Uh-huh. And I assume that the book will be available through all of the regular outlets, um, Amazon. and. Yeah. Uh... It's a standard Kindle book. I mean, if you want a description, I would say it's nice, slushy bedtime reading. It was never intended to be 
a super exciting thriller or anything like that. It was the kind of thing I would want to read at night in bed with chocolate. So on the off chance that our listeners find you utterly fascinating like I do and want to follow you online, do you have a blog? Uh, do you want to give out your, your Twitter handle, Facebook? I'll give out my Twitter handle, which is at FJM, spelt E-double-F-J-A-Y-E-M. And I will also have a web page going live probably this weekend, actually. It's already live. It just doesn't have much on it. And that's my full name, which unfortunately is very difficult to spell. But if you put Farah Mendelssohn in, I usually come up. Yeah, I'll, I'll put all of the links in the show notes so that people can find it yeah. easily. Well, thank you again, Farah, for joining us on the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 